We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, I'm talking with registered architect and the 2022 Western Australia Emerging Architect Prize winner, Matt Delroy Carr. Matt is an amazing young architect with a lot going on. He designs sustainable carbon neutral homes, develops his own projects, has a hand in the building process and is now selling the plans for some of his projects for anyone to build on their own site. He's a really amazing guy that architects from anywhere can learn a lot from. Let's jump in. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining me on the Hearing Architecture podcast. You just mentioned that you have sinusitis, but how are you feeling? You're going okay? I'm coping. Yep, I'm managing. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's just uh, part of having kids and... and Trials and um, tribulations of family life and a business. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're balancing a lot. So we're going to be hearing all about all of the things that you're balancing at the moment. But what we wanted to start off with was, I think, for people who don't know much about your work, um, it was a real privilege to, to come over and meet you in WA for the Emerging Architect Prize. And yeah, you've had an amazing journey in your in your career so far. So I'd just love to for you to talk a little bit first about what the, the sort of beginning of your career was like, because you didn't necessarily have a traditional architectural trajectory in the profession. So the I mean the architects practice MBC Architects was only really formed relatively recently, about five years ago. Um, and prior to that I was working as a sole practitioner which obviously led to the inevitable. I was in a fortunate position at the end of my university studies where I was teaching, which I'm sure there's a lot of um, practitioners that have taught at the end of their studies. But I also partnered up with with one of my colleague lecturers um, in a company called Felix and we involved in a lot of research work, I guess less built form work, a lot of research, which led to co-curating the Venice Biennale in 2016, uh, 2014. Yeah, nice. Wow, that must have been a real, you know, one, once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. That was. That sort of set the, set the tone for my expectations around architecture <laughs> and business and, and probably in, incorrectly so, but it was, a, it was an interesting experience that opened a lot of other opportunities up and really distilled the idea that research was imperative in our practice and the way we operate and, and finding a I guess finding the research niche was the was the next next challenge. Yeah, great. So so what sort of niche did you end up going into when you decided that you wanted to have a research element to your to your practice? I was I've always been interested in housing and I know that sounds a little bit cliche and perhaps short sighted in some sense as a as a graduate, but I was always interested in housing from the point of view of how how people occupied space and, you know, reflecting on the past 10 years and, and through our first project, which was actually for my parents. And mm. I guess there's a number of things that came out of that. I was, I was able to, I was able to be very hands-on with the design and subsequently the construction, mm. which led to a few different opportunities. I kind of distilled the notion that I liked thinking about space and how you occupy space and how we can, 
improve our improve the livability for mm. anyone, and then also how do we do this efficiently? Um, so through the hands-on experience, I kind of under, started to understand and tease out what what things are not necessary to do and what mm. things help, and I guess use that sort of very naive and high-level understanding of construction methodologies to simplify what we do and start to sort of streamline our design process, I suppose, and and then yeah. inevitably leading to more affordable buildings. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic, and I think that's that's another opportunity that not that many people get to have being actually on site of a project that you've designed. And when you mentioned the sort of efficiencies that you were finding, what were some of those that you discovered along the way when you were actually on site and seeing the, the building come together? It's not so much about specific elements of efficiency, but I guess looking at architect, looking at the building process through a pretty naive lens, you, you, you tend to get carried away in the detail and you sort of it's kind of instilled in you that detail is so important. But I think there's there's detail and there's detail and, and you can actually detail things to simplify things as opposed to make it more complex. And that's really what I started to understand was that you didn't need to you, you could build things simply through through effective detailing rather than over detailing it to make it more complex. Yeah, that's it's fascinating. We had a, a lecturer at University of Tasmania that used to say that um, if he if he called your project or a detail that he did simple, then that was one of the highest compliments you could get. Because sometimes people thought simple meant like simplistic or like basic or something like that. But what he was saying was, I think what you just mentioned, where it's like if you detail something beautifully and then it's easy, then that's actually a really great outcome for people on site. And if the the outcome you know looks very simple, then that's great as opposed to looking looking like it's a really complex detail. Yeah, I, I agree. I- Early experience with tradespeople on site and builders, consultants, and kind of coming into the process at their level and working with them. You know, in in the sense that, oh, like in my own mind, I was I was below them. I was still learning so much, so I was very open minded and, and came in with a really open eyes to learn how to do things. So, I think the the idea of simplicity and making things more effective then sort of evolved into an idea of, well, okay, how do I make it more cost-effective and then more affordable? And then how do I make this, how do I make the space work really hard for what it needs to do without it being too costly? And I think that's, that's what, that's where we started to kind of focus the practice, I guess, once we, once we started doing more and more projects. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this sounds like where you've started to evolve your practices, focus on an, an appreciation of sustainability as well, where it's, simple detailing for effective results that it's more cost effective is that sort of a decent distillation of what you know what's the mdc appreciation of sustainability yeah um i I mean it's a pretty sustainability is pretty open-ended but i guess from from our point of view it's starting with some core principles which are orientation connection to garden and then through that and, and this is very client dependent and project dependent, obviously. But I guess through that, then okay, well, how how simply can we achieve a really high quality space? And then from there, the you know the the glitz and glamour is really kind of irrelevant, and that's sub- subsidiary, and that's the, the the extra the add-ons are really um, as a result of our clients more so than things that we're trying to achieve. As long as we get those base principles in place, then it's usually a successful project. Yeah, awesome. 
And and so you didn't stop there though. You didn't just stop with your parents' project and then start rolling all kinds of simple simpler details out there. You then were a bit of a sucker for punishment and took on your own project for for yourself and your family. How did how did that go after you'd worked on your parents' place and now you were starting to get your head around that sort of the the detailed building side of things? Yeah, funnily enough, it was it was almost ten years <laughs> between starting theirs and and doing mine. Right, it was wow. just, we'll, we'll say 10 years for argument's sake. It seems, mm. seems like a nice number. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, look, I'm a sucker for punishment no matter whether it's, whether it's easy, hard, expensive, cheap. I think that's, that's part and parcel of how I operate. <laughs> My house was less about fancy architecture and doing, you know, doing detail and really about there, there's a couple sort of things in place really. What, what triggered me to want to do it? beyond just the, the sort of the emotional interest in doing it and desire to do it was I was working with a business coach at the time and looking at how I can, you know, grow the business and actually start to operate at a higher level, but also look at building our own equity, personal equity in this sense. So that kind of triggered me to, to take the plunge and do the project. And then from there, it was about, okay, well, how do I rationalize the, what I'm doing here? from an architectural and professional point of view. And it was really about building a house that touched on all of the kind of core principles that the practice um, believes in and really trying to explore further further research and explore all of those ideas, whether they be sort of the carbon footprint of the building, the passive design principles in place, how we use thermal mass versus ventilation, the scale of the building, what sort of materials we can use to with that scale to assist with the the carbon neutrality and the the passive design, and then just how we can communicate to people through a tangible means that building a smaller footprint house is not a bad thing, and you can still tick all the boxes for a family with half the size of what you might perceive is is adequate. Yeah. So I mean, so what what moves did you decide to to use in that regard? Because I think that conversation around efficiency and reducing footprint. Can sometimes be a bit confronting for people. So, what did, what did what initiatives did you use in your house to to make that uh, you know a, a, an efficient home for a modern family? I think it came down to. I mean, we'd done a, a fair bit of development well, in this in the scheme of a five year practice. We'd done a fair bit of development work, so we kind of understood that smaller footprint housing worked. Um, we're trained to read plans, so we understand that. But I guess how do you communicate that to people? It's it needs to be through, I think, spatial quality. If you're not going to argue it on floor square meterage against the value. So it really needs about how do we make this space feel bigger than it is. So it was about exploring the use of the void, ceiling conditions, expressing materials and and changing material quality through rooms to change the characteristic of each space. And then also just looking at, you know, ground floor is open and connected to garden. Upper floor is smaller and contained and it's for bedroom and bedrooms and sleeping. And it's not a small house in, the, in any stretch of the imagination. It's certainly it's still 145 square metres, but it's in the context of Australian homes. I think that's, that's a, Australian homes for a family of four, I think it's a pretty efficient uh, square meterage for your floor area. But it does, it's still really comfortable. Yeah, that's great. And so, yeah, the 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 inclusion of additional height. What results did that actually achieve for you guys? The internal height, you mean? Yeah, the internal height. Like, did that have? Sorry. Yeah, some passive sustainability benefits, or how did that work? 
internal, the increasing the, the height internally through the void was, that was actually quite an interesting thing because from a spatial and a, uh, an experiential point of view, it creates this amazing volume in the middle of the house that kind of ties everything together. From a sustainable perspective, it's actually, it's detrimental in some senses because we don't have thermal mass in the upper floor through a concrete slab. We've got a, you know, it's, an, it's a timber frame floor and a reverse brick veneer perimeter wall. We don't have a great deal of mass up there to control temperature so that the, mm. the void actually, especially in winter, loses a lot of the heat that we would otherwise have downstairs. But so then that started to sort of raise a few questions personally around, okay, well, if we're doing something for the benefit of our, you know, our, our mindset, I suppose, our, you know, improving the quality of living through the use of this, this design technique, design feature, then how do we justify it from a sustainable or passive design perspective? Hmm. And you start to find that some of the decisions you make around improving the livability of a space or the quality of a space are detrimental to either the carbon footprint of the building or the passive design principles in the building. And is that something that you're comfortable with? So that was a kind of an open-ended question that, that kept coming back through reviewing the house once we'd finished it and self-critiquing it. Sort of coming up with interesting sort of trying your cyclical relationship between cost parameters, carbon neutrality, passive design, and then inherently the livable qualities of the house, which we've, uh, you know, we, can then, we can then take and educate our clients with, I suppose. That's why we started that. That's why we left the question there, is to be able to educate clients and communicate to them pros and cons with decisions that are made. Yeah, because I guess that's, that's a really great way to frame sustainability is that some people think that the only acceptable form of sustainability might be a house that you never have to touch and it, everything's ideal, like the perfect temperature all the time. But then I guess there's another camp that says, oh, if things are just, uh, you know, they're cooler in summer and warmer in winter, then you've actually done a huge, huge benefit to the environment. So, yeah, what what ha- what has this sort of self-reflection revealed to you guys in terms of what, what you like about these new results that you're able to achieve? Uh, it's... It's it's probably brought me around, I guess this yeah, so, so this reflecting on the house after we've now been in it for years, so having that time to reflect on the decisions I did make, it's brought me around to be a bit more open minded towards different uh, different design, uh, different sustainability principles or mm-hmm. techniques or design methodologies. So I think more open minded to passive house and the the benefits it might have within our climate. I've typically been more of an advocate for solar passive and letting everything ventilate and being quite flexible in that regard. But I think there is certainly more scope for designing with passive house. It's also made me look at the microclimate of each different region, each or each, not region, each area or site you're building on a bit more, um, mm-hmm. understanding the, you know, the benefit of tree canopy and shade that's created from that. For example, our summer mornings, we don't have any sun on the house until 11 or 12 o'clock. So summer is actually it, it performs quite well, and as soon as we get a breeze, it's fantastic. Due to the the contextual benefits we have on site, it wouldn't perform as well on a site that was cleared of any trees of na- in neighbouring properties. So there's just so many different avenues, and you, you can sort of dive pretty deeply into the different ways of analysing the sustainable principles in the design yeah absolutely you can and i mean you've done some interesting work in the carbon space as well so what what was the big results that you guys achieved with with your carbon at the end of the the project 
Yeah, so that that was probably a, the mo- the biggest unknown for us was looking at the the house and its carbon footprint and its ongoing uh, consumption of carbon. Uh, that was so that was a big learning curve. We we undertook a, a life cycle assessment pre pre build, so during the design and then post post build once we had everything finalised. And it was more of a uh, sort of a result of circumstance that we ended up carbon negative through the both the the embodied energy of the building and the net the net energy usage over its lifespan. And really, what we found out that the the main reason for that is we're facing the right way. So the house performs. Whilst we don't have a huge star rating, the house performs passively quite well. We have a smaller footprint, so inherently have a reduced forty percent reduction in materials on the whatever huge reduction in materials on your um, comparable benchmark house. And then then you start to make more educated decisions around the materials you are using, whether they're visible or concealed. Um, you know what what what's the face material? So the brickwork we used obviously has a high carbon footprint, and we wanted to we wanted to well, we sort of we understood that that was a negative thing from a carbon point of view. It was a great thing from a thermal point of view due to its thermal mass. But you're able to we were able to have the car, the bricks certified carbon neutral with working with brickworks, and then you, then looking at other things like the timber cladding or the metal cladding. Metal cladding has little to no maintenance whatsoever of its lifespan, and it's recyclable, but it has a high body energy in construction in its fabrication so starting to kind of understand each of the different materials and the impacts they have on the the environment and and the subsequent carbon footprint of the building that was that was the most interesting aspect of that that came out of the process yeah that's awesome and i mean you you have used i guess the you've got timber brick and you've got steel in the roof so you haven't shied away from any any one particular material there as well but that's great to see that you've got a beautiful house that's that's now carbon negative and you know what do you think it was sort of this combination of the design initiatives but also like really understanding the the site and the context and you know think and elements like you were talking about with the tree canopy and seeing what what green space actually does for for the performance of your building i think every well everything started with the this a set of core principles for the design you know the, the tree was a big bonus. That's what that's what prompted me to purchase the site, because you you've got borrowed landscape immediately, and it's you know it's going to benefit you down the track no matter what. So we sort of designed with that in mind. But then everything else is about okay, well, how do I site a house on this piece of land, which is three hundred square meters? It's a pretty common sort of small subdivision site in a, in a suburban area, and then the the building can't be bigger than the landscape. So we had to set have create a setback that would balance the depth of the building so there's an equitable relationship with garden and building and then there's a, a rear setback for productive gardens and then that started to set all the parameters up for the design itself so the depth of the house was only ever one room deep in the main living area so you could ventilate well you could get sun penetration deep into the house and all of those decisions that we kind of made already informed our the, the way that the the building was assessed under both the the natter's passive design or the thermal performance system and the um, life cycle assessment with the carbon analysis of the buildings, they all actually added to it. And then the materials used, you pointed out that we used, we didn't shy away from any one material. We kind of had a bit of an eclectic mix. Was They were designed, I guess, the, the bricks and the concrete we used for the thermal mass. So we used the perimeter brick and the concrete floor to get as much thermal mass as we could in place. Mm-hmm. They're shaded, so the east is shaded by the tree conveniently, the west is shaded by the carport. And then the upper floor timber frame, I was really 
I just kind of had this idea that this is going to be a bit of a, a raw, crude, crudely built house, and I wanted to have that exposed to before. So there's sort of design, aesthetic design elements that we that we wanted to work into it. But those decisions inherently helped the carbon footprint. So it's all recycled. It's all you know reclaimed timbers that were going to the tip that we used for the floor joists. And then the timber cladding and the timber windows to the north was about, okay, well, if I'm going to spend the money on their house, where do I spend it? And that's the important part, which is the north facade. In our, in our view, the north facade is the most valuable part of the house because it's doing all the hard work. So we spend the money on the detail. We spend the money on the materials on that on that side of the house. And everything else is kind of, I say crude. It's I guess it's a simple, it's a simple build. And the, the rooms just do all the work themselves. Yeah, and I mean the spaces are, are absolutely beautiful inside your house, and I guess it sort of comes back to when you were talking about having a tangible, tangible pieces of research that then you can talk to clients about, and and I mean anyone in the community about. When you have family and friends over, do you find that they do talk about your your house quite a bit, and then you still you're still spending time educating them on you know the advantages of reverse reverse brick veneer and, and elements like that and the benefits of, of, of um, thermal mass, those sorts of things? Funnily enough, since we moved in, we, I mean, maybe it's just people feel uncomfortable commenting on people's houses, but we, we <laughs> don't really have, we don't have discussions around the house itself. People sort of say, oh, this is cool, but they don't really delve into it, it's, which is kind of nice. I, I like the idea that, I mean, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about what the decisions we've made and what they do. Sometimes feel like I'm talking business when you actually just trying to communicate ideas to people. But yeah. I think the the idea that people just walk in, it's a comfortable space. And we had we had someone walk in recently and they said, this is just such a lovely, comfortable house. Mm. And it's not flashy. It's it's not trying to be flashy. It's not trying to be ostentatious. It's not trying to do more than it is. And it's it's really just a simple three bedroom family house. And that's all it was ever trying to be. Yeah. I love that doing you know the architecture isn't sort of screaming that it's special it just is because of how it performs and how you know comfortable it feels as those people were saying so i think that's a that's a massive win and then i guess because we've talked about your parents house and we've talked about your house and you have mentioned that that you work on some developments as well let's talk a little bit a little bit about that space and where you work there so so you've actually started to you i guess do you want to tell us about how you started doing that work and how that has now evolved within your practice? We started looking at development work, I suppose, pretty, I say it's without a great deal of knowledge around other practices, what they do, but we, we started doing development work pretty early on in the in the sense of when the formal practice was registered. I When we started, the when I started working on my, for, for myself and, and, and formed the practice, I guess one of the goals was we just wanted to do lots of projects not to show off or anything. It was or not to sort of prove a point to anyone, but it was just about delivering lots of houses and mm-hmm. learning a lot in a very short time frame. And just to keep ourselves interested in, you know, we'd, we'd sort of developed this methodology of how do we build things quickly? How do we design things quickly? So we streamline our design and detailing process to communicate mm. well to on-site trades. But also how do we just do a lot and learn a lot in a short time frame so that we can you know, not having the experience of working in another practice previously, how do I learn all these things myself in as quick, quick a time as possible and make, make those mistakes early on and, you know, learn from them and gain knowledge from them. And I think the development side of it was a natural evolution where 
you're going to deliver more houses for more people in a much shorter time frame. And from that, there was a, I guess I was kind of forced into the position of trying to understand the cost feasibilities of projects, trying to rather than just saying, I can deliver a great project for you, that's, that's all you need to know. But actually understanding the feasibilities of development work and what makes the site stack up? How do we, how do we design to suit the site to make the developer a dollar? Because that's inevitably what it's about at the end of the day for them. And also deliver a good product. So I was kind of forced into this quick, very high level learning process around development feasibilities, which mm-hmm. I kind of liked. I've always had an interest in numbers and mathematics. And I guess that, yeah. that kind of resonated with me. Yeah. And they weren't like the big towers to start off with, were they? No, so we're looking at um, you know two-story terrace house or two, three, two, uh, sorry, two-story walk-up apartments. That kind of mm. either it's a quarter-acre block or, funnily enough, one of our our biggest project, which has just come into completion, was the first one we proposed to a client, yeah, well. which was amalgamating, <laughs> amalgamating five sites for in a half half hectare piece of land. But what that that learning process around the the feasibilities did for us was help us educate ourselves around, okay, well, how do we make this project cost-effective? How do we sell the ideas to developers? Because ideas are no good unless they're financially tangible and they're going to deliver at the end and they're going to be saleable. So how do we how do we look at what we're delivering as architects to make sure they're, they're a viable and tangible product for developers to sell to the market? So that's been quite a challenge and, and, and we've, you know, we're still learning how do we communicate how do, how do you communicate these ideas to people, whether it's developers, clients, anyone? Communicating the less tangible ideas to make them more valuable to people. Mm. So that's, that's kind of helped us with that as well. So we're, we're always really interested in, in just learning more and, and trying to communicate more with people. I don't know if that answers your question or not. No, it absolutely does. Yeah, no, but I think that's one of the great things about uh, learning more about your your practice is that you kind of, get great ideas and then you go to developers and you have the conversation and because of your knowledge now in in development, you're able to say, oh, here's an opportunity. Uh, as a developer, do you want to take this on with me? Let's go. Let's, let's make this great thing together. And that's that's really great for other other people to know about in, in the profession, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's you, you can't possibly go into the development sector without being educated enough to have a, an open, honest conversation with your, with your client. Yeah. That's, uh, and you know, it's a two it's a two way street. Mm. You've got to be able to you've got to be able to sell sell the dream, but it's got to be a valuable sell as well. Yeah, but what I really think is great about your the development side of the work that you're doing is that you do have this huge focus on making sure that there's greenery and green space included on the sites and not just completely filling up the site with buildings. How do you manage that with? With your knowledge of architecture and and you know feasibilities of um, development projects, yeah, the idea of you know premising prefacing the design on um, ensuring that there's I've said it before equitable equitable relationship between the garden and the house is a that's a really tricky concept and also having the right orientation mm. is a really tricky one to um, to sell to people because. Gardens don't equate to dollars per square meter in the in the the real estate mind. So it's, it's one of those ones where it's a non, less tangible less tangible aspect of a building that inevitably has more value at the end. I think having a bit of a knowledge around policy making and, and 
inherently the new medium density code, which is currently being deferred, really helps that because policy is always a good way to bring the design strategies back into a tangible format, you know, talking about all the policy needs, calls for this, asks for this, we think we can do that and pair it with this and we get a better outcome and the outcome's better because it's going to actually improve the scale, the perception of scale inside the space so that pairing this room with this room is going to make it feel bigger. And then we had some really trusting clients at the beginning. I mean, that's that's sort of inev- inevitably where that what allowed us to do that. If you don't have a good client relationship, it's it's a it's a pretty hard sell. But we had some really trusting clients, and then the you know delivering the product at the end once it's finished, it kind of speaks for itself. So it's a pretty easy sell once it's finished, and you can walk into it. But delivering it on paper is is a lot harder. So I think the the and again that was another reason I wanted to build my own house. It's a it's a small house that's not dissimilar to a, a terrace house in the development. So being able to sell those ideas through, I think, experience, and then also just being able to show the value for the product at the end from a from a you know, a valuer's point of view, to say that that house is still worth as much as that house, even though it has fifty less square meters of built area. I think that's an important thing to be able to talk about. Yeah, and I guess that's that's got to be an interesting part of developing in in Perth and other suburbs where or other cities where maybe some infill housing or or medium density development is starting to pick up now where people might still have access to houses uh, like standalone detached houses further out of the city to be able to compare these medium density projects with what they can get further out Um, and yeah like you're saying still see the value in those and see that it's high quality I guess that conversation's got to be evolving as well in Perth. Yeah, Perth's a tricky market because it's so broad. When we know it's different to Melbourne and Sydney in, in so many ways where land value is so high that there's kind of there's not an expectation around the size of the house. It's about the location as far as we see it anyway. So in Perth, you're you're really having to work hard to sell the quality of the life that the places that the, the building is offering. I think the good thing about Two things that have come out of the, the last few years and cost construction cost inflation is that it's forcing anyone, clients, developers, to look at buildings and how they can build less of them because it is a matter of that the building cost is so comparable to the real estate cost that building less is a, is a much smarter idea because they will be out of pocket too much. So I think there is more willingness and more openness to building less because of the cost of building. And the other aspect is that building apartments costs so much more than building a two-story townhouse at the moment. So there's a big shift towards, okay, well, how do we deliver infill product? And it's going to be in a townhouse is generally going to be geared up towards young families in, in a ring suburb. So what do they need? They still need garden space. They still need a good quality of life and a nice open living area. So all the things that we advocate for can now kind of be made a bit more tangible through these projects. And it's a bit easier to sell them because of all of these other factors in play. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. And once again, being able to access your house, potentially your parents' house if they're open to it, to actually go and walk through these houses to see the, see that quality before they before they buy into it is also fantastic. Being able to continue to, to show these houses or, or medium density developments is, is really beneficial to, to building the next one. And now you've sort of moved into 
slightly different area as well where um yeah you started to to sell off the plan a little bit do you want to tell us about how that evolved and um what caused you to to take that on as well yeah we're another architect firm to to dive into the off the plan market and <laughs> fingers crossed and hope it works yeah we, i think that that evolved through i mean that evolved through all of the above and just again but we we'd sort of decided that it was an opportune time to develop a number of plans that and we you know working in the development sector through small lot development and cottage lot development so we kind of saw a number of typologies of lots evolving with certain density codes in place where there wasn't really a product on the market that that worked very well from a passive design point of view but also one that was suitable in its context so we thought okay well it seems like an opportune time to develop some really high performing homes that are very common in their construction methodology very affordable and can compete with the the volume product where people don't need the extra 50 square meters of hallway and media room and they can actually they would prefer a much higher performing north facing house with a bigger garden yeah that's so great and so so which oh so with these the, the off the plan designs that you've come up with now is this based on some of the other houses you've developed or de- delivered or is this um, new designs that you're that you're wanting to get built they so they're called new house plans and the reason well i think we we figured we had so many excess plans from townhouse developments sitting in the archives that would seem silly not to start using them or at least using some of the principles in them to inform these designs so planning these out was pretty straightforward because we already had all the materials sitting there that we just had to kind of reconfigure into a different site mm-hmm. yeah right and from a lot of that, we started doing some developments with a with a more affordable developer who typically develops two by one villa houses in slightly lower socioeconomic areas. So we had to understand how to design a document to uh, to suit a volume builder who, you know, they, these things were being built much cheaper than sort of boutique developments. So we took a lot of the learning from that and applied it through the plans and the construction techniques to these new house plans that we've put together, so that we knew that. They could be picked up by any builder and yeah, we wouldn't need to be involved. They could be taken straight off the website to a builder and, and be built without any complications. Mm. And what, what were some of the big learning curves there? Because I was talking with, with someone who worked with volume builders before. This was an architect who worked on primarily bespoke houses and speaking with a volume builder, he mentioned his house having a really massive continuous ceiling and then windows that were designed to meet the ceiling level and that builder said oh because we do so much volume work i can't guarantee the plasterboard and the ceiling will sort of meet exactly where you want the the window to be <laughs> that has to be dropped down because we have to allow for at least a 25 mil difference across the whole ceiling so i'm not sure if that was one of the things you learned but what was what were some of the other um, learnings in working with the volume builder that they uh, well one of the one of the key things that came out of it through a couple of projects was that two projects in sequence was that they architects design and it might be a very simple building but they designed through someone supervising and managing the trades and, and communicating with the trades the volume projects are basically in sequence from start to finish trade a comes in and right up to trade 10 and they don't talk to each other and they need to be able to deliver their own bit of the work and walk away and the next person comes in and finishes their bit 
So that we really had to understand the sequence and how, they were going to build it however they wanted to build. So we needed to design for that to occur. Mm. Uh, through mistakes, we learned. You know, things like a brick, a double brick wall, and I guess maybe this is less less familiar to East Coast construction, but a double brick wall with a truss roof or a stick frame roof on top is never going to have a ceiling finishing flush at the top of the brick. There's always going to be a timber plate sitting on there, so they design it for the cornice. And if they don't put the cornice in, they're going to use fairing channels to drop the ceiling, and there's an extra $8,000 cost in the fairing channels. So understanding that if we wanted that you know, square set finished ceiling, we needed to cost in the fairing channels. Or we just no accept that the square set's not a critical element in the building and we have the corners and save up to ten grand. Wow. It's such a, it seems like a simple thing, doesn't it? And then yeah, it's it's just based on how, how these things get delivered every other day. Yeah. 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 It was I mean, that was a really interesting I mean, it's it that's just as interesting to us as that how do we resolve a really high level detail because I think understanding how anyone can build a house is just as valuable as understanding how you can put together a really complex junction hmm. yeah wow okay so so does that mean that now you for those particular projects you design per trade or is the how is that how the package is kind of different on from these projects to your other projects i think we're still in the we're still in the process of figuring out how do we document and present the documents to the the builder the, the sort of prospective builder we don't necessarily design per trade we one thing that came out of the, the the learning was that the the bricklayers don't lay from sections or details or elevations; they lay from a plan only. So mm. ensuring the plan communicates with the bricklayer, and that's all they need. The timber roofing trades work off a roof plan only and don't look at the sections and details because they don't care how the junction between the wall and the roof works. They just build how they're going to build it. Mm. So I mean, it's everything's kind of there, but we assume that most of the detail aspect of it is going to get overlooked and we need to sort of design out that element of confusion that i suppose that's where we kind of got to mm. and it's still a still a learning process from our end yeah wow i was um yeah mentioning with uh, talk, talking to a more senior architect the other day just the difference in documentation now compared to when they were learning architecture and starting their starting their career path and they think that there's far more pages in a documentation set now than there used to be and they, they were thinking that um, some of the detailing might be beyond what is actually require, required on um, on building sites. Do you also try to work with the people who are delivering shop drawings in that particular process to try to streamline the, the documentation that you're putting together? Yes, I suppose short answer yes, but it, the, the last few years have made it quite hard to work with the fabricators and shop drawing contractors due to time constraints. So that no one's been willing to pick up the phone and sit there and draw draw shop drawings with us to resolve something that's only a hypothetical. Yeah, uh, right. We have we have had it, we've been fortunate enough through a number of our projects to be engaged for to do on site admin and review of shop drawings. So we've we've had enough connection with the some of the fabricators to understand how things might go together better or easier and and then when the time comes i mean we've had a few people buy the buy the plans and they're they're quite happy to keep us on an hourly rate retainer just to review things as they arise yeah great um where where a complication might occur 
Yeah, it's amazing. And and what sort of, um, if you don't mind me, or if you're able to mention this, you don't have to, the price points for, for these houses, what sort of prices are we sitting in? Have you got like a range? So that, that for, the, for the build or for the... For the build, to yeah. Buy, to buy, for the build. So we, we had them... We had them costed up October last year, twenty two, and they from a from a quantity surveyor. So they started at about three thirty, and they went up to four eighty. I think was the final. Um, we've we've subsequently had them recosted with a few price increases, and it's basically gone up about fifty thousand per dwelling. Right. So mm-hmm. they're sitting at the high three hundreds through to sort of five hundred and fifty thousand for the two two story three three and four bed option. Which, wow. in the scheme of where we're building, is still pretty cost effective. Oh yeah, that's um, that's and, great. Um, and we we're now working with another builder who's pricing them all up to refine them a little bit, refine them or simplify them or whatever the, whatever you want to call it <laughs> to yeah, bring no. them bring them back down a little bit more. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really fantastic. I think that's that's a great uh, price range for for architecturally designed homes, especially when we're in a period where there's a massive housing shortage across Australia. So, so that's I think that's only a massive benefit for the people of WA and and anywhere else where where you're um, selling those plans at the moment. And so, yeah, as part of that whole the process of offering standalone houses and also doing your own development pro- projects when we're thinking about the master planning of of particular areas how do you do you do some work in that sort of master planning space as well because i guess some architects might um, not like to sell their um, plans off the site because they also want to make sure that their houses are going to be appropriate for a neighborhood context and especially when you're talking about doing developments you know even council wants to make sure that uh that the overall development is going to be master planned so that it's, you know, sensitive to what the community want um, needs are. So, do you offer some sort of master planning services as well? We've started uh, from, yeah, I guess from our from our um, policy, from our engagement through a bit of policy development and policy testing, uh, and through our development work, we've we've started taking on a little bit of master planning work, a little bit more master planning work, and started to get more of an interest in it. And I guess the reason we're interested in it is. Because and this this again sort of aligns with our ethos of if you do all the sort of fundamental things well, then the house will be good at the end. If you kind of forget about the high high end detail and the the finessing the finessing of the architecture, it's still a good project. And I think that's the that's one of our core um, beliefs is that we just need to offer better housing. It doesn't all have to be expensive and high end. So. Sticking with that, I think the, master, the, the reason we're really interested in master planning, myself personally really interested in the master planning process is that it gives you an opportunity to put all those basic principles, you know, orientation, footprint, proportions of site, layout of roads, simple, you know, circulation, open space, tree canopy. You can put all of those principles into place and apply them to a site before the building even is considered. And it means you start... To start the design from everything but the building, and I think that's really important to start. And I guess the medium density code was trying to do that, where you start design through strategic intervention. You you start through the garden. You know, the garden must be at minimum depth and width and must accommodate a tree. And I think that's a really important place to look at design. From there, the building kind of responds through its orientation, and the you know the room that's attached to the garden is going to be the primary living area. So you start to design backwards. 
And at the end of it, the car the car sort of fits somewhere in there, and I can't we can't rule out the car being an important part of the design. And if we leave it to the end, it's going to be botched up and it's going to negatively impact everything. So I think we need to assume that cars aren't going anywhere in a hurry. And how do we factor that into the whole process? So it's kind of funny because you're designing for a car and a garden, and then the house fits in between. And if you can make the car aspect more flexible and more considered long term, then it offers a lot more opportunity and then the house can kind of respond to that as well. So that's, I guess, that's that's where the, our interest in master planning is that it, it detaches you from the, the building and the complexities of the building and makes it more about high-level strategic stuff Yeah, that has far greater impact. Yeah, and I think that that's, um, it's really nice to think about developments where you know, we're, we're either respecting existing trees that have taken you know, 50 or 100 years to grow that can actually, you know, still provide a massive benefit to the people who are living on these sites. But also, you know, for some of that really amazing greenery where it might just be removed to allow for housing, that might actually get people to, to say, oh, this site isn't necessarily feasible for us if we wanted to maximise this site and we'll get them to choose a different site along the way. So that then, yeah, houses that are a little bit smaller that might be more economical can can take advantage of of that particular site and that uh, that amazing existing is, is natural amenity in a way. Yeah, I, I yeah couldn't agree more. And I think the our planning framework, and I, I don't speak for the East Coast, but our planning framework has been so our planning and subdivision framework has been so geared up around detaching house from subdivision that the subdivision can move through without a hitch without any consideration of what happens down the track. So I guess just from being peeved at that process and really wanting to have more of an impact on that process, getting involved in the subdivision, understanding the sort of complexities of the subdivision, mm. means that we can have more of an impact with, you know, architects are kind of trained to understand what potential the site has before you even design on it. So if you can, you know, design a master plan with that in mind, then you're going to get a better outcome as opposed to just, you know, clearing the site and, and chopping it up and hoping for the best. Yeah, no, I think that's that's definitely a lesson that everyone should be considering on in any of their projects that are bigger than just a single house uh, moving forward is, you know, you've got to consider as many many natural things but then also amenity things as possible and, you know, also remembering that cars, uh, yeah, like you say, probably not going anywhere for the for the near future and especially in suburbs or, or cities where you might not have great public transport. A lot of our cities are still very car-centric, so planning for that in a, in a sensitive way is still really important. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's been so great to talk to you more about your work and yeah, it's just great to hear about all these different plates that you've got spinning. Uh, they're all really interesting and, and all of the outcomes have been fantastic. So, yeah, I'd encourage everyone to go to Matt's um, website and, yeah, learn more about the work that he's doing. And are there any other websites that uh, of, of the other work that you're doing, that are, whether it's development or off-the-plan work that you'd like to shout out? No, everything everything is located on our on our homepage and we've sort of split it into separate tabs. It's all relevant, so we're keeping it all in one place. But thanks, thanks for your time. I appreciate the chat. It's been it's been good to be able to post rationalise a lot of the stuff that we've done over the past <laughs> ten years and and figure out how to communicate it better. Yeah, no, mate. It's been awesome hearing more about it, and yeah, I'm just really looking forward to seeing what you're doing in the future. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate your time. Yeah, no worries at all. See ya. See you, mate. This has been Hearing Architecture. 
proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, registered architect Matt Delroy Carr. Thank you so much for sharing all your stories about your experiences and all the different types of work you do. It's really impressive and we look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.